Welcome to the Fit for Tomorrow podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Sanders, physical therapist, and together I hope we can explore the best ways to stay fit, healthy, and active as busy adults. We all have a lot on our plate. So what is the most efficient way to exercise, eat, sleep, and train in order to continue to do the activities we love well into our future? I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Our episode today is with Dr. David Griswold, physical therapist and associate professor at Youngstown State University in the physical therapy department. David has been a longtime mentor of mine and my go-to resource if I have any questions regarding physical therapy, dry needling, manual therapy, or research-based question. Dave has a really unique ability to, to take his knowledge base and convey it in a way that's easy to understand for his clients, his students, and colleagues. In today's episode, we talk about the state of physical therapy and education in, in regards to COVID and, and how the adjustments are being made in both the, the clinical and educational system. We quickly dive into an exploration of manual therapy and how hands-on therapies affect the nervous system and, and the mechanisms of which we, we perceive pain relief and also how that applies to dry needling. Uh, with that said, let's go ahead and dive into this episode and, and hope you guys enjoy. All right, so first guest is going to be Dave Griswold. Um, kind of an interesting guest, right? Dave was my first clinical instructor as a student. So I was a PT student and I went up to Professor Ken Learman and I said, hey, I want to I learn manual therapy. Where can I go? And, and he told me to reach out to Dave. So I um, was a student with Dave in, in the physical therapy world. Uh, then he re kind of got me back into that building with uh, him and Frank Gargano at Rehabilitex. And I worked with those guys for uh, four years and got me into the dry needling world. So this makes it a, makes it a good connection as far as firsts. Um, and then also introduced me to my wife. Um, <laughs> That's right. So you got wife, you got job, you got, uh, you got all the connections. Dude, it sounds like you owe me. One way or another. One way or another. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, you know, what we want to do is talk about how do we get people out of pain and uh, how do we keep people moving well into the future and, and what's that look like? And uh, so when you talk about body work and hands-on therapy and dry needling, um, Dave's the guy. Dave, Dave knows so much about that world that um, I guess you got to talk to him. So anyway, with that said, what, uh, you know, before we dive in, what are you up to nowadays? What's going on? I mean, I see it from the dry needling world, but what's life in the professor world and, and those kinds of things? Yeah. Well, challenging these days. Um, you know, every, every day it's, it's something new. It's something different with, you know, the, all the, the changes that the pandemic is bringing upon us, but it's been good. I mean, you know, what it teaches, I think, is for our students, they're, they're going into a world where they have to be adaptable. And, um, you know, that's a skill. It's not something that people just are in a lot of circumstances. So I think that it forces you out of your comfort zone and it kind of teaches you to get it comfortable with being uncomfortable. So I think from a, from a life, you know, perspective, I think that there's advantages to to going through something like this um but it but that definitely has its challenges in the academic field for sure um but it's been good um you know the the other thing that i would say is you know from a research perspective that a lot of what i've been doing has been involving dry needling and uh you know i've had a little bit more time now to work on systematic reviews as i've been unable to do as much of the data collection with with actual research subjects. So 
um, it's kind of forced me out of my comfort zone as well and learning how to do different types of, of research. So it's all good though. Yeah. This, how do the students do it? I mean, I think there's like half of PT school is just learning how to figure stuff out. Right. So this is part of that, but how are they doing without getting the labs and the clinical and so we've been pretty there? fortunate because we've been, we figured out different mechanisms that we've set up to still get the lab practical. Um, it's almost felt like more hybrid than it has a traditional brick and mortar program. Um, but I kind of like there, it's opened up opportunities into the, into the, uh, the current times with everything going into this, you know, electronic world. And, and, um, I think that it's, it's forced us into this situation where we've, now we have to take advantage of different, you know, online platforms that are available. Um, we predominantly use Blackboard, but you got different, you know, Zoom conferences or WebEx or Microsoft Teams. And we've had to figure out how to use all those and which one do we like the best? You know, they all have pros and cons to them. So we've, we've, we've adapted, you know, the way that we teach, certainly. Um, but we've been very fortunate in that we haven't, COVID really hasn't um, impacted a lot of our students. So we've been able to kind of go at things um, relatively smoothly in the, in, at least in this uh, fall semester. So we've been lucky. Um, clinicals, you'd have to talk to our DCE, <laughs> who you I know. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think all, all programs are facing massive challenges with quarantines and exposures and, you know, students catching COVID and, you know, all those types of things. But um, I, th I think that, you know, people and students are understanding that it's not going to be smooth. It's probably not going to be smooth for a while. So you better just adapt and, and uh, be ready. And I mean, that's what we're having to do in, in, in the outside world, right? Is treatment doesn't look the same. Follow-ups don't look the same. It's digital now. So right. if, if it stays this way, at least hopefully they're ready for it and kind of go from there. But yeah, I saw some crazy clinics are up, you know, 40, 40, 45% in the number of, um, they're doing a lot more, um, teletherapy. Telehealth, telehealth. Yeah. I, I've done a little bit of that. Um, you know, we do so much manual stuff that we've almost been teaching people how to do cupping and that kind of stuff has been, has been kind of the manual stuff we're doing is more like, Hey, here's how you do cupping and show right. you how to treat your significant other. And so just having to get creative with the telehealth, you know, cause the exercise right. stuff is, is fine, but the manual stuff is, is challenging online. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, that's... it's hard to recreate. So, you know, what's interesting we did on our last practical examination for spine we did it. We had them actually do a telehealth session where we played patient. Oh, cool. They had to examine and, and do a history. But what I really liked about it was it forced the students into doing a more thorough history. Cause I feel like when you're face to face, they immediately want to jump into the physical examination. And we know 80% of the diagnostic process and reasoning happens in the subjective history. Yeah. So it was, it forced them into that to, to be more thorough there and then some of them actually came up with some really interesting ways of examining, um, like doing a cranial nerve screen over, you know, a tele, a telehealth session. Telehealth, yeah. Yeah. So it was cool. Like they had me like shine the light, light in front in of people and they would look, yeah. 
it was that's cool. pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I've, I've struggled on the telehealth visits I've done because you're so used to like, you want to check passive range. You just grab their arm and you move it, right? And you can't right. do that. So you have to think a little differently. And um, if you have somebody else with them, it's easier, but it, can, right. still, it still takes away some of that. But um, Hammer angles, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All plays, yep. The one I had, I was doing, a, a guy was like, he was having trouble walking. And so, oh, let me see you walk. And he's off balance. And you're like, uh, this is sketch, right? Because I'm not there to like spot, you know? So right. it was kind of a, there's downsides to it for sure. Oh yeah. For sure. But yeah. we got to do what we got to do. So anyway, um, I guess I wanted to talk, uh, obviously we both are, are instructors for integrative dry needling. Dry needling is a big part of what we do. I found you through the manual therapy world. What made you get into manual therapy in general and then dry needling? Like why, why those two things? Oh man. So I would say probably back when I was a student in PT school that really what kind of intrigued me about manual therapy was understanding the mechanisms and how it worked. Cause I think that I, the initial impression, I guess that we get in PT school, and I know a lot of chiropractic theories and so forth that still exist out there on this mechanical, um, mechanical theory, reducing subluxations, those types of things that are, that are out there. Um, but when, when I started to actually research more of an evidence-based approach to how manual therapy mechanisms work, I started to understand that it's really more through the, the nervous system itself. And that was really intriguing to me because I've always, I've always been kind of ortho and kind of neuro. And that's why I got into vestibular as well is because it's, you know, it's kind of like the hybrid between those two. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, you know, understanding that neurologic piece to manual therapy was just really, really interesting to me. And I used to read article after article after article about it. And, I, and it really then helped me understand how to better assess and to treat patients, you know, using more of that manual therapy-based approach. But I would definitely say it's more the neural mechanisms that, that intrigued me that got me started into it. Um, how I got into dry needling, I remember, I remember when Frank and I, we had this conversation, actually. He said, you know, there's a guy that's, that's um, Dr. Ma, who is more, um, you know, he's, what's unique about Ma is, you know, he's, has his acupuncture background, but he also has his PhD in neuroscience. And so when those two things, you know, merge, I think it's a very powerful, powerful thing in terms of his knowledge base. And so when he said, you know, this guy, we, there's a guy that wants to come and and teach us how to, how to needle people. Are you interested in that? And so my first thought was, man, I hate needles. (laughs) (laughs) I was was actually pretty nervous about it. So like when, when students first come in, to our classes. And I ask, you know, how many of you have ever been needle before? And, and, you know, like, you know, some people raise their hand, but most people are pretty nervous at, at that initial course. And I, I was the exact same way. Um, and so he's like, would, would you be interested in taking it? I said, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell Frank no. So I think right. I'd only work in there like a year or so. So yeah, it was pretty early on in my career. And so, um, so when we got into it, I remember the very first thing when, as he's, Dr. Ma was going through his lectures is I could tell that this was very much a neurological based approach to manual therapy, which was, you know, from my reading and researching and so forth, even as a student, 
it seemed like a very um, sensible way to apply this intervention. So I understood a lot of it, you know, from the get-go, just because of the ne- the neurological focus of it. Um, I'm going to back you up a second. Like the manual therapy and looking at the nervous system. I mean, obviously I'm on the same page with you there, but I feel like that's not the majority of therapists I talk to or meet. Like you almost have to, I don't want to say convince, but like you have to get into a discussion to get into that neurological model of, of how pain is interacting and how that creates guarding and things. Yep. I mean, where did you find that that early in your career like, how did you get down that road? Because I feel like coming out of school, that's may or may not be emphasized. Well, it's, yeah, it's not. I mean, and I think that that's why in the public, it's not, you know, you know, most clinicians, you know, they, because it's their training, it's, it's what they're taught in school. So that can vary from different areas of the country to other areas of the country in terms of what the clinical model, you know, that the program agrees to go by, whether it's manual therapy or exercise, you know, there's just different philosophical approaches to it. Um, And then there's the board exam that really doesn't test on that. You know, it'll test on, you know, certain principles of biomechanics like concave, convex. So a lot of programs have to cover that material for the boards. Um, You know, no one's going to ask really neurophysiologic questions on the board exam, even though we know that that's the primary way that manual therapy works. Yeah, I, I wonder if it'll evolve to that at some point. But I remember talking to somebody who, uh, who I met in a business group and where he went to PT school, he didn't do any manual therapy. Um, and, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but it's like, how, why, um, when you right. can have such an effect on the nervous system. But I think when, when people are looking at it, like it's a, oh, we got to change this muscle or fix this joint position. Yeah, it sounds like that doesn't make any sense. Why would we do that? Right. But when you talk about it from a nervous system input and how that changes patterning, now it's a, now, you know, now you got something. So, right. Right. It, so when you switched from, um, so your background is, is joint Maitland based doing a lot of joint type mobilizations um, and moving the joints and, and looking at that. Um, when you added needling to that, or when you started getting the needling, what, what made it different or what were you thinking as far as yeah, especially I mean, early on? I would say that I've always had that layered approach. So I've always kind of gone intra-articular um, assessment piece and then working out into the peripheral tissue as well. So I'm actually not a needle first in, in, mo- in a lot of clinical situations. I'm, I'm actually clear the joint first and then second. It's just, it's just the, my training background and so forth. Why, why, uh, uh, dive into that a little bit. Why, why joint first? So, We've had multiple conversations, not not just me, you and I, but, um, you know, I've had these conversations with Frank, uh, Dr. Ken Learman as well. And when you think about it, if you have a, a joint dysfunction, so you have stiffness in the joint, you have something, you know, some impairment within the joint, it's going to affect other periarticular structures outside of the joint. And so if you only affect those periarticular structures, and never address the joint dysfunction, then it's likely that a person's going to continue to have impaired movement. So if we can improve the joint, a lot of the times what happens then is it causes that neurophysiologic response that's created by joint movement also affects then soft tissues outside of the joint as well. So, you know, it's that patient that can't, can't turn their head and you manipulate their neck and all of a sudden they can turn freely and all the tone has gone out of the neck muscles, right? So, there's that, what you do to the joint, in, in fact, will impact those, those tissue structures. 
But if you, if a person though has, let's say, you know, a chronic problem where they've had joint issues that have persisted and now they have more long-term um, impact to the neuromuscular and sensory motor system, then that's somebody that potentially just treating the joint purely isn't going to give them a, a total relief of their, of their condition. And so that's when then we can go to other things outside of just, you know, trying to improve the, the mobility of the joint. And what do you say to somebody, you know, you mob or mobilize, mobilize or crack their neck and, and they get this new range of motion. What, what do you say to them? Right. Cause I think we would both agree that it's not a, you're not putting the neck back in place. You're not repositioning it or, or you know, the subluxation kind of model. Um, what would you tell that patient? What's your explanation? I, I usually will tell them, um, I give them multiple potential scenarios, mm-hmm. um, t- discussing with them possibilities of soreness. Um, you know, some people get really sore after some people don't get sore at all. Some people feel fine right now. They'll get sore later. And so you, I always give them those potential scenarios and what could happen afterwards. But as far as why it worked, like and how then, did that, how did that into, just happen? Yeah. Yeah. So then I'll go through the, that whole, by addressing, by moving the joints or by, you know, manipulating the joint, it creates a stimulus to the nervous system. And that stimulus then helps to alter that input to the, to the muscles that helps to reduce a lot of the guarding, a lot of the tension, a lot of the restriction within the tissues and around the neck. So now that you can move, that's wonderful, but that's not all you have to do. And so this is where we get into that bi-directional relationship between the, the, the therapist and the patient, because if they don't move their neck into that newfound range, it's likely that they're going to get stiff again. I'm not going to say that exclusively happens with everybody, but a lot of the times it ends up where a person starts to get stiff and then they start to, you know, have that motion loss again. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Sometimes you get those one and done, you know, you do something, you needle them and boom, they're good. Um, And it it intrigues me why some people respond so much better than others. Uh, I think there's an acuity piece to it. Like how new is it? But um, I also wonder sometimes if like, people that have been in that pattern long enough and kind of reinforce that pattern for a long time that I think there's a motor component to it as well, like a strategy, sure. you know, they're, they're, they're changing things. Um, so you clear the joint, you decide to do needling. Um, and again, I kind of, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but from a needling standpoint, what, what are you looking for? Why, why needling? And, and why is that your soft tissue of choice? So I think that what, what I like about needling is compared to other, let's say, instrument-assisted manual therapies is really the lesion, you know, the depth yeah. of, the, of the neurology that you can affect, the depth of the altered microcirculation and blood flow response that you can get. Um, and it's a lot easier on your fingers as well. So I think that clinically, it's just favorable to a lot of clinicians because of, of the lack of, you know, pressure and that you have to apply with it. Um, the other thing that I like about it too is, you know, the, the palpation through the needle. So when you're taking a needle through soft tissue, you know what that resistance feels like when it's been chronically um, tight for a period of time. And then when you feel it kind of let go, when you take that needle out, you know, feeling that objective soft tissue change, I think clinically is an important piece for you as a clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think patients can feel the difference afterwards as well with it too. As so well, I think it hasn't let go. Yeah, as well as if it hasn't let go. Then you got to think, what other alternatives do I have besides, you know, just manual needles alone? So could I use some form of needle manipulation? Can we 
hook some electrical stim up to it. So what other avenues do I have to address that, that chronic soft tissue restriction? Yeah. Uh, and as you get more into the needling world, right, that's the big conversation is what's the dosage need to look like? How much do we manipulate the needles? Um, so I guess the, the follow-up to, to that is what are your thoughts on how much of that response is, uh, let's say, a physiological or an immune response to the lesion that you've created versus what I simply say is some kind of neural trick, right? I put a different input into the system and now you're able to move. Um, what do you think is true, a response to the physiological damage and the repair process versus some kind of nervous system input? And how do you, how do you navigate that path with a patient? Yeah, I'm not sure you can tell them really, because people will ask, well, how does dry needling work? Right. My response to them is, how much time do you have? <laughs> because in reality, you know, you look at all the different central and peripheral mechanisms to how needling works. And, you know, you look at Cagney's article that identified, I think, up to 15 different mechanisms to how it works. And so there's, there's coexisting mechanisms that are happening simultaneously within the body. So to say, how do you parse these things out? I don't think you can. I think that they're just occurring within the body in general. But would you say that you have to create a large amount of lesion? You know, like I, I had a client just yesterday and okay. I did some just basic, basic put them in kind of needles into his shoulder. And I go to take him out and he had had needling by somebody else. And he's like, well, don't you need to get that twitch? Don't you need to like twitch it real aggressively? And, uh, and I kind of quickly just said, ah, let's see what it does. Right. And he gets up and his pain's better and we move on with our day. But, um, how do you differentiate that, that response and how much of that do you think you need? Boy, here's where I think, I think the key to that is one. I don't think that there's a, there's a clear answer because we've been studying dosage for manipulation forever and we still don't have the answer to that. Spinal manipulation you mean? Yeah. Spinal manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about what's the optimal dosage of manual therapy and or dry needling, you know, I think it's, it very much is, patient dependent. I think if you overcook it, I think you're at just as much risk of having post-treatment guarding as you are, you know, the, what was guarding them originally. So I think you got to be real careful. One of the things I know that Frank says, and I, and I, I like this a lot because it's something that everybody can kind of relate to is he'll say, you know, one Advil is good. Two Advil is better. 20 Advil is deadly. And so, you know, there is that, there is that optimal dosage for that patient. So I think the way that you can calibrate what that is, is through reassessing continuously within a session to know whether or not you need to continue with higher dose or, you know, don't get too greedy with, with what you've done already. And then you end up over treating them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think you got to take into the state of that patient's health. Right. Cause I've had people where, you know, you think they're going to do just fine. And then they, you know, they get a hold of you the next session. They're like, man, I was sore for a couple of days. Yep. And I would say that I'm, you know, fairly careful with my dosage. Like I'm not doing anything so aggressive. So uh, the way that immune system responds is super interesting to me. And I also think those are the people that are harder to help because yeah. they don't, they don't, the people that are super healthy just get better. Right. Um, how do you address those people, the people that you got to be super careful with? So sometimes you don't know right off the first session. Sometimes it's kind of a learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't pay attention to those things, I think that 
you end up continuing over treating. I think those are patients that get lost or they don't come back because, you know, you've, you've overdosed them too many times to where they're just, they don't think it's working but, um, yeah. well, or they feel like it might be getting worse. So why, why am I paying you for this? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think that when you follow up with, with patients and they say, you know, okay, I was really sore afterwards. Go into detail. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Where were you sore at? Was that soreness similar to other pain that you've experienced before? Or is this something completely new? How long did it last for? You know, um, I think it's good to get an idea too of other things that maybe they had done that might have also maybe contributed to some of that. Um, I think not moving sometimes can contribute to soreness after needling. I think just gentle movement afterwards for some patients versus other patients, more aggressive movements, they might respond better to. But I do think that sometimes when people get needled and they go home and they sit again, or they just become, they self-immobilize, you know, I think that can be just as dangerous as somebody that, you know, goes out and tries to run a half marathon later on that day. So I think that there's, it's, it's not just the needling alone. It's, it's in combination with other things that they're doing that are stimulating or inhibiting normal uh, immune system activity. Right. Because at the end of the day, we, we still need their immune system. We're creating a stress or a stimulus, but we need their immune system to, to go through that repair process. Um, so, yeah, I, and I think that first question that you said is, how does that soreness compare to like your normal pain or whatever? That's such a big question. Right. Um, and I have found myself recently, especially if somebody gets super sore, I almost do some type of like superficial or lymphatic work before or after the needles. And I think it's reducing that. So I wonder how many of those people, you know, just. So what do you think that is? It's a, I don't know that it, I have enough to say like, oh, this is a thing. But I have a suspicion that there's some type of they're having trouble clearing out inflammatory markers or their immune system is not responding as strongly as it does. And by like doing a superficial kind of sweep first, uh, typically I do cupping. Um, a, the needles are much less sensitive because a lot of those people are sensitive to the needles. Right. So the needling then becomes more comfortable. And uh, I, I just, I haven't noticed the soreness afterwards. Um, one lady in particular, I had actually treated her, I treated her neck pain with needling and she did really well, positive response. Came back with some low back pain and like a plantar fasciitis, probably a low back type of referral. But I needled a little bit in her neck because she just wanted to do a maintenance visit, like kind of just why she was there, do some needling there. And then I did her back and her, you know, kind of followed that, that nerve distribution down the leg and it like wrecked her. Like she was like sore, like, like uh, flu-y like for a few days. And she's somebody who I had needled, but just kind of, I think because we did multiple locations, the dosage got higher. Right, right. So I followed that following visit with literally just cupping the entire system. Didn't do any needles the, ne- the next visit. And soreness, whatever fatigue she had was completely gone afterwards. Interestingly, her back and her neck were also a bit better. Um, and then we got back into needling on that, that third visit um, and didn't get that soreness again, which mm. I was more careful with my dosage. But I don't know if that's a lymphatic thing, if that's a circulation issue, um, a sensory nerve guarding aspect that you're kind of hitting with some of the sensory nerves with the cupping a little bit, a little more heavy. Um, well, and we know, you know, all these things are related to one another, you know? And so it's not like it's one system. It's yep. often the, the interplay amongst multiple systems. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder like, 
I'm, ba- I'm very interested in the sympathetic nervous system activity. And if, if the sympathetic nervous system is causing, so that stress kind of nervous system, fight or flight, if that guarding the pain protection, let's say, of that muscular tone around a joint, could that also be constricting some of the blood vessels in the area so that we're not getting the clearance we want? And so do we need to work on some of the superficial and maybe sympathetic inputs from the skin and, and some of the superficial vessels from a nervous system standpoint, I could see how it would restrict that as well. Not just some of the deeper tone that we think of. Um, right. And I think that that, you know, we talk when we talk about needling or manual therapy, it's, it's not that it increases or decreases this nervous system activity or sympathetic activity. It helps to normalize it. And, right. and that's an important point because it really depends on the state of where a person is in terms of that sympathetic output. So, you know, does it create parasympathetic activity or sympathetic activity? It depends, right? It depends on the state of that, of that person. So I think then that ties into then, okay, what about the emotional component? Where's the patient at emotionally with life? or with, with stresses or whatever. Cause I think that all of that, even the, even the treatment, even the treatment, like how do they perceive that treatment session? Like, is it going to be helpful or not? How nervous are they about needles or cups? Yep. Yeah. I mean, it all, yeah. yeah that's Needling anxiety. It's a real thing. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you live that one. Right? Real thing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. That I, that which does it do, you get the same question in courses all the time of, does it activate a muscle or turn off a muscle? Yeah. And, and I don't know, I, I know people want an answer, but I don't understand why we think we have so much control over how the person's going to respond. Like, I'm going to put a piece of tape and it's going to activate the muscle, or I'm going to put a needle and it's, uh, I mean, you're just trying to provide an input and, and hope that the system responds. But uh, I think you got to think about it so deep that people don't love it, you know? And, you know, the other side of it is, is it's not up to you. Right. Right, you, know, you don't get that, to do that. You're just providing, like you said, you're just providing a stimulus. It's not up to you how it's going to respond. So you can put the piece of tape however you want. That doesn't mean that you're going to get the response <laughs> that you actually think. Right, right. And, and, and then people want to call it a placebo, right? Because you say, oh, they just think they're going to get better. What is your response to that question? I know what mine uh, is. But... People, people have this, this idea that placebo is a bad thing. And I don't, I don't understand <laughs> Like placebo is a good thing. You know, there's certain in, in, in the, you know, area of research. Okay. We want to know why things are working, but there are certain things that we cannot control for in manual therapy research. It is really hard to control for placebo. Um, but, and we know that it exists pretty much in everything that we do. So you have to account for it to some degree in, in your effect size of these, of these, you know, RCTs and so forth. But um, to me, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a negative thing. It's, if somebody gets, you know, manipulated and they get the audible and all, they have better range of motion because they got the audible versus if they didn't get an audible, you know, does it matter? They have better range of motion. You know what I mean? So from clinical practice, I, I don't think placebo is a bad thing at all. In research, I think it's one of those things that you try to control for as best as you can and don't overemphasize the, the impact of your treatment on the patient outcomes because you don't want to say, well, you know, my manipulation was that much better. Well, did you, how much, you know, are you accounting for the placebo effect of that manipulation or whatever? But um, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think that what's worse is the nocebo. I think when you, when you, you know, when you use catastrophization of patients, 
you know, you show them an image and you say, well, I've never seen, you know, a spine that looked that bad or a knee that looked that bad or arthritis that looked that bad. That all that stuff is, is aging. I, I don't get why, you know, they have to have to use, you know, normal degenerative problems as a way to catastrophize patients because there's, we know that there's a ton of people that are walking around that have arthritis and have degenerative changes in their spine or in their peripheral joints. And it's normal. Yeah. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I've seen some MRIs. I just had a guy who, who is a friend of a friend and he showed me his MRI and I was like, okay. And I was like, how you doing? He goes, I don't have any pain. And I'm like, what? Like I'm looking at this MRI going, it's bad. <laughs> like there's multiple herniations. Um, part of the disc is ruptured and kind of floating up. And I'm like, that doesn't look good. And then he's like, I don't have any pain. I got a little bit of numbness in my leg and that's it. I'm like, you know, <laughs> good for you, man. But yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't know. I had a guy who, listen, I had a guy who, um, obviously for, I'm not going to mention any identifiers, but he was mowing his, his yard and a tree fell on him, on him, like yeah, big tree his lap. And he had multiple fractures, severed his femoral artery. I mean, just lots of bad things that happened. Minimal pain, complete sensory, complete sensory, he had a sensation? No, no sensory involvement at all. Acutely, he had no pain or like months later? Well, acutely, he was in shock. But once right, he right, got right. through that part of it, yeah, I mean, by the time I saw him in outpatient, he's like minimal, minimal pain, if any. He goes, I'm just glad I'm alive. I think that, you know, people's perspective is, is important, you know, in terms of, mm-hmm. of their experience with pain. But yeah, because you're, yeah, it's all on how you think about it. Like people that, that get in a car accident, like you treat somebody that they caused the accident versus somebody that got hit and somebody else hurt them, the yep. outcomes, are, outcomes are different. I don't know what the research is, but the outcomes are different. Like it is definitely harder working with somebody that got hit versus yep. somebody that wrecked their car into a, you know, somebody else or hit a tree. I mean, there's that, there's that the notion of the victim you know, yep. in, a, in a situation. It changes that perception. Now, do you think, like, so the emotional side, the cognitive side of that is, is obviously super important. Do you think manual therapy can have a role in the emotional side of it? Absolutely. The, the, you know, the same areas of your brain that process pain are those that process emotion. Right. And so that's why, you know, chicken or egg scenario, people that have chronic pain oftentimes have anxiety, depression, emotional disturbances of some sort. And so we don't know, is it the changes in the brain due to the chronic pain that start to facilitate those depressive um, thoughts or is it vice versa? Do these people already have depression and anxiety, then they get injured and then they develop this chronic pain, you know, experience due to the, the, the already existing depressive behavior that they had. So I do think that if you could, that's why I think, you know, looking at cognitive behavioral therapy and trying to have patients focus and rehabilitate the emotional components it oftentimes helps their pain too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I, I don't know that we completely understand that mechanism, but yeah. I mentioned, I mentioned to you the other day that, that cellular pathways of how the different, you know, you're looking at activation, of different cellular pathways in the brain and how they relate to chronic pain and also neurodegenerative diseases, whether that's an inflammatory thing or, or some type of a, a protein type. I think that's the future where we're going to see medicine um, 
or healthcare, I should say, where we're going to see it go. Because I agree. It's a deeper level understanding, but we can measure those things now. So, you know, we got to figure out exactly how we can interact with that. Um, so that's cool stuff. What else, man? Anything else you want to say was in regards to dry needling and what you've been doing from a research standpoint? So we are, um, right now, we're over 50% through the data collection for our headache trial, um, which is a cool one because we're taking uh, people who have cervicogenic headaches and they basically get randomized to either dry needling, cervical cranial dry needling, um, or they get randomized to orthopedic manual therapy to the neck. So with the dry needling group, essentially what they have done is they get, there's, it's semi-standardized in that they get upper cervical needling from C1 to C4, and then they get 30 seconds of needle rotations in those, in those paraspinal points. And then the clinician can also needle any potential uh, muscular points that they feel are indicated, whether it's the sternocleidomastoid or the scalenes or the upper trap. And they can also then um, needle the headache distribution pattern. So if it's a trigeminal headache, they can come and needle, you know, innervation points of the, of the trigeminal nerve. If it's more greater occipital, they can stay back on the posterior fossa. So they can be very specific to the headache distribution that a person has. Is there a dosage limit? Like how no. many needles? No. The no, we, clinician decided? What we, are, what we are recording on the first visit is the number of twitch responses. That a person that a per, that a, a person would get with a patient just to see if there's a if there's a difference depending on the um, the number of twitches that they get. And that's clinician sees the twitch. Yeah, we're not using ultrasound just because I haven't had um, consistent uh, access to an ultrasound machine until now. So I say I have I have one. I don't know that I can see anything, but I have one. <laughs> I still I still need some practice. It's. You know, when somebody puts it on the screen, you're like, oh, yeah, I see it. But manipulating that thing to get yeah. the image you want is, um, I, can, I know where I'm at, but I don't know that I'm good enough to be like, oh, that's this, or that's a tear, or that's a pathology. Um, that's normal. It, I'm not good enough yet. So Right, right. More and, you know, the, other, the other interesting thing about, um, you know, in, in the area of myofascial trigger points, we, we oftentimes will use images of that local foci within the skeletal muscle tissue. And so I ran this by a person that does a lot of, they have about 25 years in ultrasound diagnostic experience. And they're like, you have no idea. That's what that is. <laughs> like, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. He goes, that's a theory that that is not, that, that has not been validated to actually be true. Interesting. Like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think like I just did the, our ultrasound needling course. Like, I think I could identify tendons and to be able to needle a tendon, I, I'm pretty confident that I could do that. But what you're saying, like those kind of details, I have no idea. But anyway, yeah. so you're needling, um, you're needling upper, well, needle upper cervical and then clinician selected points. And then yep. uh, where are you guys going from there? So then the other group with that gets the manual therapy, they get either mobilized or manipulated clinician choice. They can target the whatever level they want to target based on, you know, the symptomatic area of the neck that's generating the headache. Um, and then um, in terms of the dosage, it's totally up to them. How about soft tissue? Like, are they allowed to do cupping, instrument assisted, any kind of? No, just, just to try to minimize the 
the interplay between any you know soft tissue manipulation in them, the joint mobilization manipulation. And so the idea is that really what we wanted to do with this is take guideline-based care. So the uh, American Physical Therapy Association's orthopedic section published guidelines for uh, different cervical pain conditions, one of them being a cervicogenic headache. And so I always tell people that when, I, when that was revised, when I was looking through the recommendations for, for um, the different cervical pathologies, some of them did include dry needling, but cervicogenic headache did not. And I remember thinking to myself, that's, that's kind of wild to me because in my clinical practice, you know, anecdotal, but headaches, I feel like is, is like needling's pretty big with migraines and cervicogenic headaches and so forth and tension type headaches. So I was kind of like, wow, that's interesting. So let's do a trial to compare those two things. So then basically the one group gets guideline-based care and then the other group gets mostly guideline-based care, but they get needling instead of the orthopedic manual oh, therapy. Right. In that. Interesting. Yeah, that, that surprised me when you just said that. Like that classic like ram's horn cervicogenic headache, like if, it does, if they don't leave 50% better or better, I'm, gonna, I'm kind of surprised. Right. Like right. if they walk into the clinic with a headache, I'm going to be able to change it. Right. Like, most of the time, most of the time. Um, how about exercise? Are they getting, is it like a standard exercise program? So it's not standardized. So, so that's what you do with the low back one, right? Yes. Um, to try to minimize the, um, the fluctuation in how people could apply back exercises, we standardized it in that one. This one, because we already know what basically the effect is of exercise for the neck, um, we gave 10 options of different exercises, and then the clinician could pick five of them. Oh, okay, that's cool. So we didn't want to say we have to do these things because, you know, not, they might want to do a different you know, direction of exercise. So we allowed them some flexibility to do that. The other cool thing though, um, with this is that they're also getting a rescue technique. So they will be prescribed a headache relief technique, like a mulligan snag, like a C1 snag or the headache nag. So they can get a a specific relief um, exercise for their headache, which hasn't been done yet. Interesting. When you say it hasn't been done, like as part of a study or just as part of a study, they haven't really looked at the impact of, of patients being able to symptom manage their own headaches over the course of time beyond discharge. So our study, we, we collect data up to a month while as, they're, as they're receiving treatment. Mm-hmm. After one month, they're no longer getting treatment. We're going to follow up with them again at three months and then again at 12 months. So it'll be interesting to see what the outcomes are for these patients who are doing their symptom management techniques, if they're like doing their symptom management techniques. Yeah. I mean, I've had patients that have been doing those for years, right? Where yeah. You're talking like towel snags or, or that, that mag. Yeah. So yeah. that's cool. I like that. And it, it very closely now resembles uh, what you would do, right? Whether you decide to yeah. needle or not is, is one thing, but the rest of it sounds pretty consistent. So that's, that's a cool study. Is it twice a week? Yeah. Twice a week. Yeah. Month? They go um, two times a week for two weeks, and then they go one time a week um, following that for the, for the following two weeks. Sounds pretty sweet. They, so I leave that up to the clinician as well. Yeah. When do you think you'll be done with data collection? Uh, Yay for COVID. Yeah, COVID, I would already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say within, 
within the next, you know, six months or so, I should be cool. Six months yeah. to a year. Yeah. Crazy process, all that research stuff. It's fun. I mean, you know, it's, it's pragmatic and that's what I like about it mm-hmm. is I've always tried to make my research projects meaningful to practitioners and not do something that's, you know, purely within a Petri dish type of situation where if you put it out, if you take that information and it doesn't alter clinical practice in some way, what's the point? Yeah. No, I like your study designs because you let the clinician make some decisions. Um, Cause it's really hard to like, you can't eliminate all the variables and, and where you want to needle or where you like, if you just gave me four points and said, do this, well now what if, the, you know, what if this one little thing is different? Right. I, I can't do anything about it. So in my head I go, well, yeah, that's a cool study, but I would have done it different anyway, you know? So this way you're getting to see how those clinicians are going to make decisions, which is, yeah, it's going to be huge. So. More generalizable to practice, but. Right. You could actually use it. Yeah. That's cool. All right, man. Well, this was fun. Hey, before we wrap up anything, you're like, what's your interest? What are you into? Anything uh, that's going crazy that you're like super interested in right now? Professionally <laughs> or personally? <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, what's going to be interesting, I think in, in PT here is I feel like we're at a, at a crossroads of our professional identity. You know, I think that what happens in the next five to 10 years is going to be interesting in our profession because we are trying to go that primary care route. Um, And, you know, some states are pushing harder for direct access and more um, accessibility to direct access patients. So it'll be interesting to to kind of see that because I also feel like we are at a... um, we're trying to figure out where, what is our role within this massive healthcare system? You know, what we're, we have so many different hats that we can wear in different areas. I feel like we're trying to figure out our, uh, that, that true professional identity at the same time that we're trying to figure out what our role is in, in the system itself. So I think it'll be really interesting to kind of see how this plays out in the next five to 10 years. And I also think that, you know, the proliferation of so many PT programs is also going to impact this as well, because you got, you know, some hybrid programs that are out there that are taking, you know, big cohorts, you know, and where, where are all these people going to be working? Where, what are they going to be doing? If we meet that primary care role, I think it'll expand opportunities for these students to, you know, once they get out licensed then they can do it. But it'll be interesting kind of how all of these things come to, come to uh, fruition here for us. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I guess that's something I don't think about all that often, right? I've kind of taken on that primary care role being direct access and right. 99% of my people see me before they see their doc. That's just kind of the way it works. Um, and I think there's a huge benefit to that because we're able to skip some of the... Uh, sometimes not needed medical steps of you got to go get this x-ray and then you got to go to do this and then you got to go see this person and then you got to go see that person and then you got to go see this person for mechanical pain we're able to to kind of triage that pretty quick right. um and and make those decisions of <clears throat> hey i can't triage this now we need to refer out but right. um if you just kind of if you start with your primary care a lot of times it's x number of weeks of rest <laughs> 
then maybe you get to a PT, but maybe you get to some other specialist. And, and so I think there's a huge avenue for rehab specialists to, to take on that primary care role. Um, but I can also see, you know, why there would be some resistance to that, I guess. Um, and from a reimbursement standpoint, that's a whole nother beast. You know, are you going to, are you going to pay PTs enough to get good at, uh, get good at primary care rehab? Yeah. I mean, are they going to spend enough time to get good at it? Yep. Yeah, it'll be interesting. There was, did you see that article that was published in JLSPT recently that was looking at the cost? Cost, yes. Yeah. I mean, clearly early PT, I mean, this is another study that shows that early physical therapy reduces costs, not just on the patient, but on the system. Do you remember the numbers? I don't remember them off the top of my head. No, I just, I was just actually. I just looked at the abstract. That's what I was looking at this morning. So I'm going to look, look at it more thoroughly here, but yeah, yeah interesting less. stuff though. Yeah, that's cool. All right, man. Well, hopefully this actually recorded and we can use it. <laughs> it says it's recording. It says it's recording. As long as it sounds good. Um, I tested it earlier today, but you know how that goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, thanks, man. I appreciate it. We'll have to. Yeah, we can, if you want to redo anything, just let me know. Thank you for enjoying the Fit for Tomorrow podcast. Hope you're able to pick up a few things to help you live and move better. We'd really appreciate a like, share, review, or follow in order to help us continue to grow this podcast and help more people like you looking to feel and move better as active adults. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.